Hello, all of our listeners out there. Thank you for another episode of Spamming Zero. Today, we are going to be joined by current CEO at Plana, Peter Mahoney. Peter, this is going to be awesome. We're going to be talking about how to prevent your CX strategy from just being lip service. But before we get into that topic, let me tell you a little bit about Plana. Plana is a budgeting platform for marketing leaders. I myself, James, have used it. It is fantastic. It made my life so much easier, especially if you're an early stage startup and you don't necessarily have finance figured out. It makes it even better. <laughs> I love it. Um, it's intuitive. It's an easy way to track your budgets across diverse teams in your marketing org. That being said, we have another episode and here we are live. I'm James. And I'm Brian. And this is Spanning Zero. Thanks for joining us, Peter. Very excited to have you. Excited to be had, Brian. I can't wait for it. Awesome. So kicking us off here, uh, first question to, to get the ball rolling. You yourself are, of course, a podcast host who has launched a couple more episodes than I have, although, I don't know, I guess you probably stack up similar to James on a career basis. But I got a question for you regarding hosting podcasts. How many episodes would you say it took you to get your groove where you felt like you were delivering a smooth, enjoyable experience that was fulfilling the vision that you had for the podcast? Well, I think I'm still in transition to that full fulfillment, Brian. I, and we're, we're 80 some odd episodes into the next CMO podcast. But I'd say to get to that first click, it probably took about 10 episodes to get there. And I've done a fair amount of interviewing people in the past, just in my past roles. So I was comfortable with the idea of interviewing someone and I don't know, having a basic conversation, which is what most podcasts are, but it does take a little while to find your voice, to find the right approach to the podcast that is both authentic to you and hopefully useful to your audience. And the one Little known fact, I don't know if this is little known or not, Brian, is that about 10% of podcasts that I record never see the light of day. And what gets them on Wait the chopping block? So a lot of things can get there, but the, the key is just that you sometimes have a guest, and it'll be interesting to see if mine makes the light of day. We'll see. Sometimes <laughs> you have a guest. They may be an amazing person. They have a brilliant point of view, but for whatever reason, they're just not comfortable with the format. The there's awkward in their answers. They try to be too scripted is the thing that I find is is a real challenge for people. They try to parrot a bunch of sort of standard marketing messaging or something like that instead of having a conversation. And you can tell it takes about five minutes into the podcast and you try to guide and nudge them. But you can tell from the pretty early early minutes of the podcast that this isn't going to go well and it's never going to see the light of day. And it's actually one of the day, ways that I think it's important to try to maintain quality in, in a show is to just have some basic standards. And if for whatever reason it isn't working, it's no big deal. It's 30 or 40 minutes of someone's time and move on and do the next one. I've, I've actually never heard anyone do that. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I, assume that more people do. It can't be just me, but, uh, but it, it does make a difference. And there are, certainly there's some that I, I listen to after and I go, oh, that just, that just wasn't, wasn't good at all. 
Uh, and it's usually people trying too hard. And, and again, I think the format works really well on two ends of the pole. So one, either it's very conversational and you're just having an honest dialogue with someone, or on the other end, it's just a very highly produced, scripted kind of that, that NPR style, news style, well-written, crafted, produced kind of thing. In the middle, things kind of break down in my mind. All right, so let's dive into this topic then um, that we think is going to be pretty useful for a lot of our listeners out there. Why did you feel like this topic needed to be talked about? Like, why are you passionate about this, this idea of customer experience just being lip service? You probably have to understand a little bit about my background to understand why I care about this a fair amount. So before starting my, my current company, Plana, I, I worked for a number of years, actually 13 years, for a company called Nuance uh, that was a leading provider of voice and AI technologies recently acquired by Microsoft. And in our early days, we were almost exclusively focused on, on what we thought of as a voice service or interactive self-service, or we called it different things at different times. And I saw a lot of bad things over my experience at, in the industry. Uh, and I saw people create some great experiences and uh, some really ter terrible experiences. And it really put a, shone a bright light on customer experience for me, just being, spending so much time in, in that industry. And, and it's one that I just care about a lot and can really, uh, I, I really get excited about the, the concepts because I've spent so much time thinking about it over the years. Why do you think it's become web service more than it has become like strategic initiatives that people are really executing on. It almost seems like it's, well, there's a lot of things that could be lip service in business, but <laughs> this one in particular. Yeah, there, there are. And here's the problem. I think that customer experience is one of those things that, first of all, it's been elevated as a topic. So people talk about customer experience you know, writ large across all the different kinds of customer experience you have inside an organization. And, and if you think about it, just to set some context, customer experience can be calling someone on uh, an interactive voice system. It can be going to a website. It can be showing up at a retail location. It can be interacting with a representative of your company in public, like at a trade show, all these things. And of course, interacting with your product, all those things are customer experience. And all of them in some add up to your perception of your experience with that brand over time. So if you think about it, it's a very, very big thing that spans a lot of different departments of most companies. And the big challenge that people have is they like to stand on their pedestal and say, customer experience is incredibly important, but it's very difficult to drive real accountability into customer experience, especially because the things that we just talked about, those different kinds of interaction experiences or channels as we'd call them, they often have different owners in a company. And it can't be a CEO job to be responsible. Certainly the CEO should be an advocate for the customer experience, but it's really about who, who owns this thing at the end of the day. And that causes a lot of problems in my mind, James, is that there are these battles between these fiefdoms around who should really own that customer experience over time. And is it worth it to invest more budget in one particular area of the business if that department in your company is being managed as a cost center and really focused on saving money versus creating great experiences? 
that was a mic drop right there. That last part, especially because I, here's the crazy thing about it. There are so many organizations that I see right now trying to do away with the idea of channels, right? There's no channels that exist anymore. It's just one cohesive experience. Well, I'm going to squash that for a second. As long as there are preferences of us as humans, there will be channels. It's that simple. Some of us are going to prefer a unique channel over another. And Brian and I have talked so much about this internally <laughs> because we talk about like, uh, like voice being a channel and we talk about chat being a channel and we talk about email being a channel and now text being a channel. And like, I am one who took, like changed my entire financial world during the pandemic over to a particular credit union simply because they met me in my channel of preference. I think channel is very, it's, it's very underutilized and it, and it's now being muddied with so much, like people are trying to get rid of it because I think they can't figure out how to tackle it. I said, oh, what's the, what's the, what's the easiest thing for us to do is to get rid of the channel altogether. I had a really interesting personal experience with that when I was running a, a business inside nuance. So I, I ran their consumer oriented business, the dragon voice recognition they sold to individual users and consumers and things like that. And at the time when I started, I think it was about 2007 or eight, I started working on running that business. It was sort of a, almost a forgotten part of the company. Interestingly, it had been really, it's been massively invested in since then, but it was sort of set to the side, largely because it was a go-to-market motion that the company wasn't familiar with because most of the stuff the company sold was sold to enterprises. It wasn't sold to individual users. And there was a big effort to try to do exactly what you were saying, James. It was about squashing channels and basically closing doors. And the first thing that I did to much to the objection of some of the executives around me is I just started opening doors. I said, well, let's, for, for instance, they didn't want any social media presence back in 2008 where it wasn't used as much as it is today. They didn't want it to have a Twitter channel. I'm like, well, why not? Well, people will call us or contact us there. So what? Okay. Then <laughs> if we, we want to get the input and get people to meet us there and get us to get them to interact. Uh, and of course, in the first three to six months, we got a big rash because people hadn't been able to reach us. We were like this, this fortress of solitude and we didn't open any of the doors. So the first thing we did is we swung open all the doors and then we scrambled to tr try to do our best to respond to people in the channels that they were interacting in. And it was a little bumpy. I don't know if it was the best decision to just do it that way, but I, I did it that way. But on the, on the other end of that, we had a dramatically improved customer experience for, for those end customers because we just changed a fundamental policy about opening channels versus shutting down channels. I love that approach because it allows the customers themselves to dictate the channels that become priorities, right? So often you see new company starts growing. They start to stand up their service, customer service team, CX org. And the person that's running that team is like almost has a roadmap around when they're going to turn on different channels and it's like their prerogative and something that I don't want to say they're pulling it out of thin air, but it's certainly not right. What you're saying is we're going to open everything and it's going to be a little bit of chaos because obviously we can't support everything. We're not going to have all the infrastructure for it, whatever, 
but at least we're going to get the signals around what are the channels that people like to use. And then I'm sure the next step for you guys at that point to, uh, I guess, like weather the storm and start to build a great experience was, okay, we're seeing the most volume here. What are the things that, what are the low hanging fruit, the quick wins, the big things over time that we need to do to now thrive in this channel? That's exactly right, Brian. So the first step is listening. So opening up, opening up the door and seeing who comes in and see what they say. And we, we got an amazing amount of feedback from people. And a lot of it was negative, by the way. And, and a lot of it was initially, like, I've been trying to reach you people and I get this, uh, this support black hole because again, we back then really considered support to be a cost center. And it's really changed since then pretty significantly. So we got a lot of that, but then you got the second level stuff. You started to hear the other issues and concerns and complaints and frankly, ideas that people had because people had great ideas about how they were using your products. And one of the other tricks that I, I used myself, and I, I love data, you know, data is amazing to get, and it's great to open up all these things and find out if you can organize data. But what's really important at the same time is actually having that one-to-one listening kind of opportunity. So one of the things I would always do is periodically I would respond to sport tickets myself, or I would sit on the phone and take calls, or I would go onto our Twitter account and make responses to the messages that were out there. And, and it's a way to engage with the end customer in a way and get a really, really high fidelity signal from what they're thinking at any given time. And you get much, much more than you would get if you just saw a synthesized report of some data points by having a high bandwidth, real conversation with a real user. I think that is a fundamental way in which you can turn your customer experience strategy into not being lip service. I am telling you right now, the majority of brands out there do not do what Peter just did. So if you just do that one little thing, to me, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about, which is flipping the script on that and changing something that is supposed to be a very fundamental strategy, a very strong business driver to something that is, is no longer going to be lip service. And, and I love the fact that you're talking about, like Brian mentioned the word chaos, Th- this whole idea of like opening up a bunch of things to, to have chaos, right? It's turning chaos into beauty. And that's what, that's, what's so interesting about all of this is like, in order to, to glean minute details from customers, one, you brought up the framework of listening to them. That's, that's a given, but two, it is opening up those channels so that it is a little bit chaotic for you. Of course, it's going to be hard to manage all those inquiries and you're going to have to sift through the ones that are either just negative responses that are coming in and turn them into positive. But I I think that fundamentally you can turn your customer experience strategy very easily into actionable things by just opening up the channels and allowing a little chaos so that it can turn into something beautiful. And that's, I think, exactly what you did. It, it is, but very important. What you can't do is let the chaos continue into perpetual entropy. You need to make sure that there's actually a, an orchestration of this data and this experience over time. So you can start by getting some data and opening things up and getting a sense for what's going on. But then what are you going to do about it? And the biggest challenge that I found we had anyway, when we opened up all these channels, was managing the customer's expectation around what we should know about them when they contacted us in one channel versus the other. To us, it was all one company, whether they sent us an email, got us on the phone, 
were on a website or were on a social media channel. It was all the same kind of inner, it was the same company, but we'd often have zero context for what was going on. So this person comes in and maybe they come in and talk to a salesperson because the salesperson is the person who happened to answer a phone because they called the main number at the office. And they say, great, I'm going to sell this person something. And they get this, you know, long diatribe from this customer who's been complaining about something and not getting a response. So having this ability to ultimately understand what, these touch points, these interactions are across these channels and, and coordinate them over time with at least some basic data. And you don't have to be perfect, but you need to have some way to be able to say, all right, I need whether it's connection to my CRM and sort of a universal connector or record locator or something like that. So at least I can figure out who is this, who is this person to the best of the ability in that particular channel. So if you're talking about a high knowledge channel, like an agent, as an example, they should have access to lots of different information. Automation tends to be slightly smaller because they're going to have a very specific domain that they can operate in. So maybe they don't know everything, but they need some contextual clues to make sure that they're having an appropriate conversation. So you brought up a great point. Automation works two ways. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how automation can make this a little bit easier for people, because to your point, to make sure that the chaos doesn't get out of hand, right? I think that naturally, me being a data nerd too, you have to start correlating the data points so that you can create repeatable processes and you can actually create automation against it. And automation is two-way. And I think so often when we think of customer experience, we think of automation in the form of the customer but there's also automation in the form of the business process, right? And you kind of hit on some of this, like the, the connection to the CRM and those simple little things should be happening, right? Um, the sort of activation of the data across departments. It is like one of the biggest painful things that I hear about in organizations when I, when I, or when I call a phone number and Brian knows about this example, and I have to give my personal information that is, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, I don't ever want to give that information over the phone, period. Let alone having to give it to not just one, but like five, six different departments when I get passed on and passed on and passed on. It is a fundamental problem. It's a security issue. So it's a risk and an opportunity risk that you have as a business to fix. So especially with all these data breaches out there that can happen, like every single touch point that you have that you're not feeding that data to a different department is an opportunity that you're providing a risk where it can go, it can go south very quickly. And I think so often we don't think of the ability to automate as a way to actually solve some of that problem. It's exactly right, James. And I know that in many of the projects I was involved in back in the day, back in, you know, the late 2000 aughts, as an example, when we started doing a lot of automation for giant banks and airlines and people like this, the big challenge is they had this Byzantine set of legacy systems and thousands of individual applications that were completely disconnected. And if you wanted to figure out how to get an agent to take the information from one system and put it in the other, I can't tell you how many times people would either have a notepad app sitting on their their desktop or maybe a, a piece of paper or a sticky or something like that. And they're literally writing down, or they used to anyway, write down PII, personally identifiable information, so that they can pass that to the next system because there was no technical integration. So they needed 
humans in a lot of cases to, to bridge the world. And, and that's the kind of thing, it can be a, a very, very long tail problem when you're a large complex organization, as an example. This is where smaller organizations have a, an opportunity. If you're a mid-sized organization, you probably don't have thousands of applications that you're dealing with for your internal systems. You might have dozens, and you probably do at least, but it's an easier problem to solve, especially if you're a more recent tenure kind of company, maybe you have more up-to-date systems or you've gone through enough time that you've actually completely updated your infrastructure. And if you do have more contemporary systems and hopefully fewer and more integrated ones, then you can really make those experiences sing. But it's difficult work to do when you're dealing with, in a lot of cases, incompatible systems from different vendors, custom systems in a lot of cases, and transferring information from one to the other, which seems like it should be trivial from the customer experience side, can be an extremely difficult and very, very expensive thing to do on the enterprise side. One of the things that we talk about is the idea that our product is only as good as the data that we have access to. And it is the same thing that you're talking about. And, and you and I, when, when we first met Peter, part of what was so interesting was, right, I consider Nuance almost like the godfather of this category, right? In a lot of ways, providing the same thing in like to, right, doing it in the last generation sort of way. And when I think about what's changed now and what are the things that, that we are lucky enough that that the world has evolved and we have access to that weren't around 15 years ago. The, the first one that people draw to is the actual change in like the underlying voice technology, right? And everything that's happened there and the ability to understand people and better sounding voices and, and all of that stuff on the AI side. But the other piece of it to me that is absolutely like you wouldn't be able to, our product wouldn't work the way it does and these experiences could not be as good as they are and are going to be is the evolution of the backend systems and of these like mass market platforms that are holding all of the data that the agents need to access and thus also that the automation, be it in the voice channel or in right a chatbot operating in, in live chat or email, like you're only as good as the data that you have access to. And that transition in the systems. And I think that you're right, right? Like it can be older companies that have evolved, but so often what you really see is it's newer companies and it's companies in verticals that are very tech forward, right? So e-commerce is obviously near and dear to us, but yeah, I couldn't agree more with all of that. I think there are a couple of considerations in that general area of thinking, Brian, that are important to explore. And one way to think about it is if you are some czar of customer experience across an organization, as an example, you probably want to Pareto out the touch points that you have and you prioritize them. You say, okay, I, if I have 20 touch points, as an example, how many of these systems and applications and touch points am I going to integrate? You're, you're going to stack rank them. And one of the things that helps you get to more of the items on that list 
is what you were just talking about, Brian. If you have contemporary systems, up-to-date, open APIs, things like that, that's a good starting point and a prerequisite in most cases to be able to start to knock down some of these applications. The other thing is something that I know you all embrace in your business is more of a low-code approach. And, and the idea of not only having these things available, but having the ability to really, really rapidly develop these applications. Because the reality is that it might be not a super high volume kind of application. Maybe it's the kind of application that historically wouldn't have been cost justified to do this work. And that's what the exciting part is. Because if you can drive down the total cost of that kind of implementation, which means you not only the technology has gotten you know better and easier, but it's also dramatically easier to actually deploy, create and deploy and manage these applications. So if you add something new to your business, you can just add something. And that kind of thing, you know, we, we used to take down uh, you know, million dollar contracts in big companies all the time to do all the professional services. And that was great business. And, you know, they still have a great business there, obviously. But what is really going to open up the market and really transform broadly these kind of customer experiences is the much more rapid, easier ability to develop and manage these these kinds of customer experience and voice experience kind of applications, especially uh, because then you'll get to more of more of these applications much, much faster. Peter, naturally, with all of our conversations that we have on this podcast, we always like to make it a little bit more human, you know, make our guests seem a little bit more human because they might seem uh, kind of like famous and, and, and you're, you're famous in your own, in your own ways. And so one of the ways that we like to do that is we like to ask the last couple of questions to be very unconventional, which is on brand to what we bring here. Tell us about an experience that you've had in your life that has left vivid memories for you. Boy, there are a lot of them uh, that they have. And it's funny, um, I, I'm going to talk because of the, the channel, I'm going to talk about an experience that I had that was a customer experience thing. I was going through a ton of back pain. I was really suffering because I've been sitting in my same pandemic office at home for the last two years. Long story short, my primary care physician said, hey, you should make an appointment with, with this physical therapy office and they'll take care of it. And I had the worst experience I could imagine trying to schedule in the middle of pain, trying to schedule an appointment that my doctor said, just go here. I had this, you know, social proof. I had the doctor, someone I trusted saying, hey, this is a great thing to go to. So I go to their website and they say, great, just book the appointment here. I go and I book the appointment. It gives me a confirmation and it says, we're going to confirm a day before or something like that. They never confirmed. I call the office. It rings and rings and rings. And then eventually it says, leave a message. I leave a message and I hear nothing back. Uh, so I just, on the day of my appointment, I decided I'm going to go walk down and just go to my appointment. Of course, I get there and there's a big sign on the office that says this office is closed due to COVID precautions. And the website allowed me to book an appointment. The voice system allowed me, told me that I should expect to, to be there and what I needed to bring and all this stuff. And of course, somewhere in the background, someone didn't turn a couple of things off they didn't uncheck that box on the system that said that, hey, this particular location, because they're a big national chain, this location is, you know, you can still book time for. So what did I do? 
I did what I hoped someone would have done to me in this position. I reached out to the COO of the company and I sent him a note. I connected with him on LinkedIn and said, hey, I just want you to know that this is going on. Because people used to do that to me all the time and I actually really, really appreciated it. And it was great because he immediately got back to me like within 20 minutes and said, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. This is what we're going to do about it. And he was really specific about it. The next day, I had a call from one of their open offices. They apologized. They scheduled my PT. My back is now feeling much better. I had a great experience. So it was a terrible experience where a little bit of human interaction and listening to the customers in a very simple way when a problem was escalated allowed them to take someone who probably would have been a major detractor for this brand into someone who's going to be, hopefully I won't have to be a repeat customer, but if I do need more PT, that's probably a place I'd go. Flipping customer experience. I love it. Peter, I have one more question for you. This one is a little bit more serious. I don't know. So here we go. I'm worried. The world needs nuggets of wisdom from leaders like yourself. If you could give the world one thing that you think they need to focus on to help make change for the positive, what would it be? Simplicity. So I think people overcomplicate everything. And I think it's incredibly important for people to just take some action and whatever it is, whether it's their work, their personal life, just take some simple first steps and some action and not spend six months analyzing and getting analysis paralysis and trying to figure out what the data says, the best thing to do is go talk to a customer, pick up the phone, try something new, open up a channel, call that person you haven't called or whatever it is, do something simple. Take a step, a simple step, and it's better than thinking about it for six months and doing nothing. Thank you so much for joining us on Spamming Zero, Peter. Great. It's awesome to be here. Thanks, James. Thanks, Brian. And I look forward to hearing this in the wild. If you haven't subscribed to our podcast, Spamming Zero, please do so. We'd love to hear from you also. If you have any topics that you would like to address on the podcast itself, reach out to Brian or I via LinkedIn, and we'd be happy to hear from you. Thanks again to all of our listeners out there. We will see you next week. Bye.